Hey, it's Emma. Season five is still approaching. So this week, we're sharing an episode from another one of our favorite podcasts, What's Your Problem, to tide you over. We think you're going to love it. In this episode, host Jacob Goldstein, journalist and author of the book Money, interviews Val Misikov, who's built a hydrogen-powered, zero-carbon plane. Could planes stop being part of the climate problem and start being part of the green energy future? That future might be just around the corner, actually, because Val hopes to have his planes available to consumers by 2025. I hope you enjoy this episode of What's Your Problem? You are, in fact, a pilot, no? Yes, indeed. Indeed. Is that, in fact, a pilot headset that you're wearing? It is, in fact, a pilot headset. Can you give me a little, like, you're the pilot and I'm on the plane. Just give me a little bit of that. Uh, what am I doing? Yes, um, ladies and gentlemen, get ready for takeoff. Uh, <laughs> we're about to go to sustainable future. How about that? Very good. <laughs> I'm Jacob Goldstein, and this is What's Your Problem? The show where I talk to people who are trying to make technological progress. My guest today is Val Misikov. He's the founder and CEO of Zeroavia. His problem is this. How can we have commercial air travel that doesn't make climate change worse? As you'll hear, this is a very hard, very high stakes problem. Zeroavia is trying to solve it by using hydrogen fuel cells to power planes. The company has about 300 employees. And earlier this year, they had a successful test flight of a small hydrogen fueled plane they hope will be in commercial use by 2025. So how did you like what was how did you get to starting this company? Yeah, so the short version is, um, you know, my previous company that I co-founded grew and sold, you know, and now is actually the basis of a, um, one of the largest e-mobility platforms in Europe. Yeah. And to be clear, that company was basically doing, doing charging, doing charging for electric vehicles. Exactly right. Yeah. Right. So since 2010 or so, I was in the sustainable transportation space as an entrepreneur. When I sold that company... And as you correctly uh, noted, I'm a pilot myself for the last 20 years or so. So when I sold that company, I started thinking about what's next. Sustainable transport was already in the cart, so to speak. Uh, and then aviation added to that, and then sustainable aviation. So that was uh, relatively natural. I mean, sustainable aviation is really hard, right? Like, I feel like, you know, there's the very big picture, the sort of the energy transition, decarbonization, and like... Electricity generation, we're doing great. We can get electricity without burning fossil fuels. We've got some transmission and some storage issues that are hard, but basically we can we can get electricity without burning fossil fuels. Cars, we're doing really well. EVs, great. We've we've got that one. Planes seem really hard. Planes seem harder. Exactly right. And that's why I started it, right? Because somebody's got to do it, Yeah. It's a huge problem. It's actually um, on track to become the largest problem we, we have in terms of uh, sustainability. Huh. Because we're solving the other ones and we haven't really cracked planes yet. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, and this is actually planes uh, or aviation. Commercial aviation is one of the fastest growing transportation modes worldwide. There's either 10 or 15 percent. I don't remember the exact number, but only 10 or 15 percent of people have flown. On aircraft, yeah. right? And obviously, as you know, people get a little bit richer and the standards of living go up. People jump on a plane and they want to go somewhere. Yeah. So, right. so you have the sort of rising middle class, say in a lot of Asia, you have billions of people who've never been on a plane who, in the next 10, 20 years, 
they or their kids are going to start flying the way we fly in the West. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. And while in the West, we're sort of, you know, some Scandinavian countries started it, so the flight shaming movement, right, from Sweden and all that, we're thinking, oh, well, maybe we should fly less and all that. That is a developed nation-centric view, right? Yeah, no, we're not going to shame people into not flying. Yeah. I'm, I'm very comfortable with that. Uh, we can stipulate that. Right, so we have to figure out how to fly planes without generating fossil fuels and other bad emissions. Yeah, so, uh, and the problem there is not just carbon, right, which is important. So from carbon accounting perspective, aviation is about 3% today of uh, all okay. human emissions. Okay. But uh, the actual impact on climate uh, is at least uh, triple that, right? Because of the high uh -huh. altitude emissions of uh, combustion artifacts, right? So that's particulate emissions, high temperature, water vapor, all that stuff emitted up in the atmosphere. All the other stuff besides carbon, carbon dioxide is, right. is particularly bad for climate change if it happens at whatever, 30,000 feet above the ground. Right, right. So um, as a result, already aviation is anywhere between 7 and 10% of total human climate impact. Presumably, as you sort of turn to it, you think through the different possibilities. How can we solve this? So how do you sort of think through the different possible solutions? Yeah, yeah, and uh, you, you're very right. So uh, really, in order to fully solve the problem and reduce the impact profile of aviation, you have to get away from combustion. And there are a few different options there, right? Once you get to the long term, even that is people are trying different things. So if we're going to stop burning things, if we're going to make electric planes does that basically leave us with the choice of batteries or hydrogen fuel cells? Is that we? That's we got right. Left? Or fuel cells of some kind, right? So there are multiple uh -huh. types of fuel cells. There are, you know, fuel cells that work on methanol, for example, and things like that. Well, before we get to fuel cells, I mean, we've got electric cars. They seem cool. They work with batteries. Why not do that for a plane? Very good question. And we actually did this analysis relatively early on. We said, okay, well, look at. Let's look at all the transportation modes, starting from personal car all the way to commercial aircraft, right? And on the way, you have taxis, you have like small trucks that deliver postal services, and then you have big trucks, then you have airplanes, then you have, you know, large commercial planes. You take personal car, that's about 2 to 3% of the total weight of the vehicle is gasoline or, or diesel fuel, yeah? And then you move to the other side of the spectrum, which is commercial aircraft, you have up to 40% of the takeoff weight is fuel. Uh -huh. yeah? So that's 20x difference on the energy yeah. intensity, right? And that gives you a perspective of like, hey, how much energy do I need to store on board my vehicle in order to enable commercial operation or viable operation? And just to be clear, the answer to that question for a passenger car is not that much energy. That's right. And the answer for a jet is an incredible amount of energy. That's the right. jet is like, by weight, almost half energy storage. Right. Gets to that point. Okay. And just to be clear, batteries, even relative to regular fuel, like a key problem with batteries is they are not very energy dense. You need a lot of battery to get a little bit of energy. It's a big problem for batteries in general. Exactly. So when you have, you know, for a small car, your fuel is 2% off the weight of the car, then you say, oh, well, e even if my battery is 20 times heavier or 20 times lower energy density, it's okay. You know, I can have a battery that's now 40% of the car weight, which is what you have in 
you know, early Teslas, huh. right? But it's still fine, uh -huh. right? You can still make a functional car that's yeah. half battery. Yeah, you can you can make a viable vehicle. But when you start with a 40%, nothing you can do. You can't make a plane that's 200% battery. Right. And it's actually an interesting point there because, you know, it's like you get into, into this problem of uh, what I call a, a rocket equation, right? Which is like in a rocket, for example, in a space rocket, most of the fuel is used to carry fuel. Right. Through the <laughs> through the beginning of your ascent. Right. Right. Because the rocket is almost entirely fuel. Right. And so when it's blasting off, it's expending a tremendous amount of energy to carry the fuel that it's going to need in 10 seconds to get it a little bit higher and so on. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly. You got it. So with battery airplane, you get into the same kind of circular dependency. So, OK, so you land on a fuel cell. Let's just do like a really basic like what is a fuel cell? All right, so a fuel cell is an electrochemical device that takes fuel and oxygen and converts it into electricity through a catalyst-based reaction, right? So there is no okay. high-temperature combustion involved, and you have direct electricity production. And that's what makes that thing very efficient. So let's talk about end-to-end -end the dream of how it's going to work. Afterwards, we can talk about sort of where you are now and what you still have to figure out. But like... When you sort of close your eyes and imagine the world in 10 years or whatever, how's it going to work? Yeah, so we are going to have uh, hydrogen production on site at the airports. Okay, It's a green hydrogen production through electrolysis, local renewable power. So the airports will have little hydrogen factories, basically? What's that going to look like? Yeah, but it's actually quite sizable hydrogen factories. Okay, not right? little. They're going to have hydrogen factories, big hydrogen factories. Great. Yeah, so what's that yeah, going to look yeah, like? Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to have, uh, so let's say right now, every large airport, a medium airport as well, they have what's called fuel farm. Okay. Right? So that's a separate area dedicated to uh, receiving, storing, processing, dispensing fuel. Now we're going to have part of that fuel farm will be dedicated to hydrogen production through electrolysis. And that, that electrolysis, what's happening there? What is that step one? So it's, a, again, you know, uh, a system. Right here, you take water and electricity, produce hydrogen and oxygen. Okay. Okay. You're getting the electricity from a from a solar panel or a turbine, not from burning natural gas. So sure, you've got your electricity coming from the solar farm. You're using that electricity to create hydrogen. Yeah. So it's hydrogen at the airport. So it's piped over to the uh, to the air side, and then it fills the aircraft with hydrogen electric engines. Then it's used uh, to produce electricity on board, and you operate all this aircraft, less noise, no emissions. And that's where the, the, the messaging has parallels with the automotive, right? When Tesla came in and said, well, actually, you know, electric car is a better car because it's so much more efficient, better torque, better acceleration, all those things. So similar here, the electric propulsion is much more efficient than any combustion propulsion you can have. Even for the largest engines that we have that are running on 787s and beyond, they are less efficient than even small fuel cell electric engines that we fly in, you know, 20 seat planes. So there was a crash of one of your test flights last year, right? Tell me briefly what happened there. Yeah, so mostly I would say the root cause was a loss of power on the engine, right? So, you know, duh, uh, naturally, you know, otherwise we wouldn't have landed in the field. 
but the real cause... Well, that's bad, right? You don't want to have loss of power in an yeah, engine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you test experimental engines. So, um, you know, and you, and you test it through uh, sort of expansion of the envelope. So in this case, uh, uh, you know, there were some human factors that resulted in wrong points uh, in the pattern for the power to be switched uh-huh. off, uh, wrong altitude to be flown, uh, and now those things kind of compounded together. And then there are some other things, but mostly I would say human factors. Okay. Related. And nobody was hurt, right? Just That's to right. be clear, nobody That's right. was. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, and, and the, <laughs> the entire system, you know, the hydrogen storage, the fuel system, the hydrogen fuel cell and all that were, um, were safe throughout the whole sequence. There was no leakage. There's no anything. I know, you know, you kept working on, on everything after that. And I understand you had a, a test flight earlier this year that was something of a milestone. Yes. So that was our third prototype. Um, we, we've flown smaller planes before with our systems. Uh, this is our latest design. And how big is it? What was the plane that flew uh, this year? It's a 20-seat aircraft. And is that, do you hope to have a 20-seat plane in, in commercial use in the foreseeable future? So that type of a plane, that size of a plane, 10 to 20 seats, is our first launch target in two years, 2025. Okay. And so does two years mean you mostly have it figured out and you just have to get regulatory approval? I mean, just. I'm sure yeah. it's not just. Yeah, but like, yeah, do you basically yeah. know how to build that plane now? Are you confident that it works? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. We're finalizing the design of the engine to submit to certification in the next six months. And do you do you have to fly it for thousands of hours or something? I mean, I imagine those uh, regulatory requirements are quite stringent, a whole new kind of propulsion. We have to operate the engines for thousands of hours. We don't necessarily have to fly. And that's part of oh, our right. approach is that we work with existing aircraft types. Yeah. So our initial business model go to market is retrofitting the existing fleets. So we go to the operators and we say, hey, you got a fleet of hundreds of these aircraft. We can repower them with a better engine because Uh while aircraft themselves last for 30, 40 years in commercial service, especially in the small aircraft space, they go through multiple sets of engines over that lifetime. Uh-huh. So it's like, hey, you're going to need a new engine for this plane anyways. Let me sell you one of these fuel That's cells. That's right. Yeah. And is it right you have a, some number of orders for Correct. for those? Is that Correct. right? Yeah. Yeah, about uh, 1,500 engines on pre-order right now, so 1,500 or so. And I think four out of top 10 airlines worldwide are customers already with those pre-orders. About $10 billion worth of you know, pre-order revenue, future revenue. So what has to happen for you to actually sell those engines, to get those engines to those airlines? Oh, we have to get them certified and we have to deliver on the uh, uh, performance targets that we have committed to with these airlines, right? Which means that uh, we have to develop a certain amount of power so that that aircraft can take off in a certain distance and uh, climb at a certain rates and all yeah. that. And we know we can do it. You also need to get the infrastructure in place at airports, right? Like that seems yeah. The infrastructure is actually everybody gets hung up on that, but um, we say think I'm hung that up. I'm interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but everybody, everybody is okay. Yeah. So. Um, but we think that infrastructure is actually the easier part of the equation here, right? Huh. In the U.S., the total number of all commercial airports is just 400, 400 uh-huh. locations. And 100 of those airports account for 95% of the traffic. Right. The answer is you don't need that many. But we, you know, we, we're not, 
attempting to build all the infrastructure as well, right? We have partners like Shell, for example, is a major investor in Zeravia, and they are looking to bring hydrogen infrastructure to these airports as well. But we work with them in the back end. We aggregate that supply into our business model. And when we go to the airlines, we are the one-stop contract. In a minute, what Val and his colleagues still have to figure out to get their first hydrogen fuel cell on a commercial plane. That's the end of the ads. Now we're going back to the show. You mentioned that the the engines have to meet certain performance specifications. Are you there yet on those? Yeah, on the performance, uh, we're we're almost there. The, we we get the uh, we get the actual power. We get the efficiency. Uh, what we're working on now is mostly around weight reduction. Uh, for the engine. Uh, the engine is going to be about twice as heavy as the turbine engine that it replaces. So you take some trade-off on the range of the aircraft, but not nearly as much as you would have to do with batteries. So these planes won't be able to fly as far as a jet fuel powered plane. So you're hoping to launch in small planes in a couple of years. And I know you want to eventually get to big planes, the big commercial jets that you fly across the country in or fly across the Atlantic in or whatever. What is hard about about scaling in that way? What's hard about going from where you almost are now to where you want to be in 10 years? Mm. Two things, two main things from the technology standpoint. One is we need to move from a sort of typical low temperature fuel cells that are used in the cars or types that they're using cars to higher temperature fuel cells that are optimized for aviation. And so why, why do you need to develop essentially a new kind of fuel cell to, to fly bigger planes? Right, because uh, the, the, the bigger planes require disproportionately more power uh, to uh-huh. move, right? So uh-huh. um, uh, they're generally faster, right? So all those jets, they fly much faster, which means the power levels are uh, significantly higher. So a plane that's twice as big requires way more than twice as more much More than power. twice as much power, right? Oh, that's hard. That's hard. You can't just build a bigger fuel cell. Or bigger yeah, the fuel reason fuel. that's hard with the, with the current type of fuel cells, at least currently using automotive, is because when you scale power, you also scale the heat production. Because no no system is 100% efficient, so you have the heat right. that you need to remove from the system, and that heat about, is a byproduct. Yeah, heat, that, heat that's right. In, yeah. Inefficiency. Yeah. Now, for low temperature fuel cells, that heat yeah. is thrown off at low temperature, uh-huh. and and it's difficult to remove it. Because, for example, uh-huh. a, a good a hot environment example is Phoenix, Arizona. In the middle of the summer, okay. it's 50 degrees Celsius on on a runway, sometimes even more. So yeah. your fuel cell, typical fuel cell in a car, operates at about 60, 65 Celsius internal temperature. So you now have 65 versus 50. That's not much delta that you can use to cool it, right? Because if you're right. if you're if your ambient temperature is the same as your core temperature, you cannot cool it, right? And so so what you need to do is you need to either you know, have humongous heat exchangers or radiators, right? Which is yeah, prohibitive yeah. because then they weigh a lot, heavy they and... introduce drag and all that. Or you can increase the temperature of the fuel cell. 
right? And just uh -huh. even small, relatively small increases of temperature give you very significant benefits. So our in-house technology is operating instead of 65, 70 degrees uh, Celsius, it operates yeah. at 180 to 200 C, but yeah. It's if you if you take again an example of Phoenix, right? Basically, it can be air cooled. The hotter it runs, the that's, easier it is for it to be air cooled. Cool, just cooled, right? But that's a, that's like a fundamental kind of engineering problem that you have to solve is making a hotter fuel cell. That's right. So that's one. The yeah. second one is for large aircraft, you need to go from gaseous fuel storage to cryogenic liquid storage of hydrogen huh. on board because huh. otherwise okay. you you cannot store enough basically. So those compressed gas cylinders, while they're super simple, super safe, all those things, right? They're heavy because they need to contain that huge pressure. So, yeah. you know, best in class right now is only 8% of your fuel tank system is fuel. 92% is tank. Okay. Oh, wow. Um, so, so that's the tanks you're putting on the 20 seat plane. It's mostly tank. It's mostly tank. It's brutal, right? That's brutal. Yeah. 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 Now, that, what helps yeah. is, of course, hydrogen itself is three times better energy density than jet fuel. And then with yeah. fuel cell, you use it twice as efficient. So you're yeah. sort of six times better than jet fuel. But I'm still bummed that your tank full of hydrogen is 90% tank and 10% hydrogen, right? That makes me sad That's for right. you. That's right. That's yeah. right. So so in order to 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 move from that, you have to go cryogenic liquid, which is low, low pressure storage. So you don't need uh, those you know, yeah. huge, but walls, it has to be super cold walls. is your problem and now you that it has get, to be super cold. Yeah. You have to, yeah. you have to be super cold, but they're, they're you know, uh, people know how to yeah. store those things, right. It's a vacuum insulated. The thermos is really you know, nice. Thermos. Yours, right. Yeah. Like a thermos. Yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. Right. A thermos. Yeah. Uh, okay. Carbon composite thermos. So then most of your tank yeah. is actually fuel, right. By weight. And that's that that changes the dynamics quite a bit, and that that's how you you're going to make uh, airplanes go potentially even further than today's kerosene uh -huh. planes, right? If anybody can handle more than 20 hours on the plane. So you need much much colder fuel and much hotter fuel cells. That's Both. right. Yeah, that's right. Which is actually a very very interesting point because you can then <laughs> use the you fuel know, to marry cool. that. Yeah. Cool, uh, yeah, you can cool the uh, hotter fuel cells with colder so, fuel and get additional efficiency. Tell me the ways in which shifting from gaseous hydrogen to very cold liquid hydrogen is hard. Sounds hard. Is it hard? Yeah, it is. It is hard. The, the reason it's hard is because there is virtually no history of vehicle use of liquid hydrogen. Right, for for uh -huh. you know propulsion, right? So I mean, hydrogen is. Look, I've gone this whole time without saying Hindenburg. I was trying not to say it, but hydrogen is uh, very reactive. It blows up, right? I mean, is that a concern when you're talking about this new kind of fuel? Or well, with any fuel, you have this concern, right? Uh, kerosene yes. blows up, gasoline blows up. Yes. All yes. any any time you have significant amount of energy stored, you're gonna you know you're gonna have issues, right? Yeah. Um, so d d does that become a challenge when you're trying to store hydrogen in this way that it hasn't been stored in vehicles before in this shift? To yeah, yeah, yeah. So you hydrogen? have to you have to basically design the 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 safety system around yeah. it that manages it correctly. It's possible. Uh, liquid hydrogen is used in the industry a lot, right? So the industry knows it's stationary applications, you know, uh, pharmaceuticals. And so people know how to do it. Yeah. 
right? It's just that now we need to make it lightweight. We need to certify through the aviation certification standards, right? So that's that's a significant challenge. What you're doing is hard, clearly. If it doesn't work, I hope it works, obviously, for you and for everybody. But if it doesn't work, like, what do you think is the most likely reason it wouldn't work? Yeah, frankly, I don't, I don't see the reason. Fair. I don't see the reason. That's the classic entrepreneur angle, right? It will work. But, but you know, I'm a, I'm a physicist as well by background, and we have, you know, a good number of scientists on the team. And, yes. Um, I mean, you know, there's, there part... are things like execution risk, right? There's, there's the, like, first principles of things that should work don't work in the world because of idiosyncratic reasons. Right. Right, right, right. So there's always that. But from the sort of physics and science perspective, uh, there, are no, there are no real barriers. And, and, and the thing is, you know, we, like we society, we have to make it work. Um, it, it is becoming larger and larger part of the problem. So it, it will happen, uh, which means that it's a huge opportunity to be taken. And that's, uh, that's what we're doing. In a minute, the lightning round including the metaphysical lessons of a physics PhD and cold plunges. Now let's get back to the show. Uh, I just want to do a few sort of lightning round, semi-random questions to finish. Um, You have a PhD in physics from Princeton, and I'm curious what studying physics taught you about the fabric of reality? Mm. Well, first of all, that the, the best approach to things is a really first principle approach. Right? So not get clouded in how, how things were done, but uh, look, at the, look at the core. On the more metaphysical uh, sort of side uh, of your question, I think any scientist that is sort of real scientist will tell you that um, it's pretty clear that we don't know most of what there is to know, right? So sometimes it might be, uh, you might have a temptation to say that, hey, we're, we're in this uh, you know, advanced uh, state of society or human knowledge that uh, we know most of the things. No, uh, in fact, you know, we don't know most. And probably we don't know <laughs> even 1% of what there is to know. Um, and, it, and it helps uh, to uh, be have a little humility. Why cold plunges? <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, let's see. Actually, the real the real answer is probably uh, testing the that theory that human body is capable of anything. Uh, pretty much. Well, we know it's not capable of anything. Well, y- y- you know. Or rather, much more than you expect. Uh huh. Okay. Tell tell me about your cold plunge game. Well, we we had a little DIY thing. Um, okay. It's a it's actually a a, a fish tank cooler, and it okay. gets it gets water to a nice uh, three degrees, uh, you know, Celsius. So it's just barely above freezing. Very cold. That's right. That's How right. Long? It's very How long? How long you sit in that water? Five to ten minutes. That's much longer than I would have expected. Um, yeah, five to ten minutes. What was the worst moment you had in an Ironman triathlon? <laughs> um, well, uh, I decided uh, in the in the second half of the run, I um, in my infinite 
wisdom. The, uh, I had a water mix with some uh, fuel mix. Um, so I, I'm like, hey, I'm not going to carry it. Uh, I'm going to be efficient. I'm not going to carry my water with me. I'm going to drink it all right now, right? as over a liter of water. And, and that caught up to me, you know, through the, through the run. So that was not pretty. What was the best moment in an Ironman? Oh, the bike. Uh, I, I love the bike. So I don't, don't actually have a car. My wife has a car, but uh, sometimes I borrow it. Uh, so I bike everywhere. Uh, so that's my favorite uh, part of, the, uh, of uh, any triathlon. Val Misikoff is the founder and CEO of Zero Avi. Today's show was produced by Edith Russolo. It was edited by Sarah Nix and Robert Smith and engineered by Amanda K. Wong. I'm Jacob Goldstein. You can find me on Twitter at Jacob Goldstein, or you can email us at problem at pushkin.fm. We'll be back next week with another episode of What's Your Problem? Hey, it's Emma again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of What's Your Problem? If so, there's plenty more where that came from. You can listen to What's Your Problem wherever you get your podcasts.